Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to present, uh, and this is followed by a question-answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include fighting dogmatism and the future of antitrust policy. Our first panel includes Gary Saul Morrison and Morty Shapiro, who will discuss their book, Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us. Our first speaker is Morty Shapiro, who is the president of Northwestern University and a professor in economics. Both Morty and Saul are opposed to the polarizing dogmatism that is common in our polarized political debates. I hope to learn from Morty about what he learned from his vantage point as a university president about the role of the university in encouraging free speech and political discourse. Morty also has the perspective of someone who has come under personal attack from the cancel culture movement, and I want to learn about successful ways to challenge these attacks in the public debate. Morty is also an economist, and I hope to learn how economic tools can make our political discussions about governmental policy more productive. This week, the U.S. Senate is discussing a $3.5 trillion bill. Uh, this proposed legislation would enact the largest expansion in the federal government's history. I want to hear from Morty about how the field of economics can aid us to evaluate this major shift in governmental policy, and if such a substantial change in economic policy should be implemented without any support from the minority party. Our second speaker is Gary Saul Morrison. Saul is the Lawrence Dumas Professor of the Arts and Humanities. He's also a professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Northwestern. Saul has spoken twice before on what happens next. In April 2020, Saul discussed a Chekhov short story entitled The Bishop, and in June of last year, Saul cons considered potential lessons from pre-revolutionary Russia. Today, I hope to learn from Saul about the power of literature and how the realist novel can help us better understand the mindset of others. Our final speaker today is Josh Sovin, who's one of my best friends. I first met Josh in my first college class, an English seminar about malcontent characters in the novel, in September 1984. Neither of us have changed much in the 37 years that we know each other. Josh is an antitrust partner at Wilson Sonsini. Uh, previously, Josh worked at the Federal Pay Commission and in the Department of Justice's antitrust division, in particular with regard to health care. Josh spoke on what happens next twice previously. His latest presentation was on antitrust panel with Doug Malamed from Stanford and Fiona Scott Morton from Yale. Much has changed in the antitrust arena in the past few weeks because President Biden has placed progressives Lena Khan as the chair of the FTC and Tim Wu as responsible for technology and competition policy in the White House. Josh will speak about how the progressive wing of the Democratic Party will try to change merger policy. In addition, will Khan and Wu try to break up big tech like Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon? And will the Biden administration use prescriptive regulations and executive orders in lieu of stopping corporate mergers to achieve their view of the public interest? All right. Our first speaker today is Northwestern University President Morty Shapiro. Morty, please go ahead. Uh, thank you, Larry. You had some great questions. I'm going to save those for the Q&A after and use my six minutes just to set the stage for Saul, uh, a little bit about our latest book, Minds Wide Shut. So I think everyone listening understands this increase in incivility in this country and in other countries. Uh, Saul and I have a new essay. We've written several of them since the book came out a couple of months ago. And this one we just cited in the beginning some polling data for Americans where 62%, almost two out of three of Americans said they have political views they're afraid to share. 
And, you know, you mentioned, Larry, about what it's like on campuses. If 62% of Americans are afraid to speak their mind, I can imagine what it is on college camp, uh, campuses. So in this age of cancel culture, people screaming at each other, vilifying your opponents, your opponents aren't just misguided, but they're the embodiment of absolute evil. Uh, that was the thing that worried us, Larry, and that's why we wrote this book, uh, Minds Wide Shut. Uh, you mentioned fundamentalism. The subtitle is How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us. We go into great pains, Saul did actually in an early chapter in the book, about defining fundamentalism, which is used very conveniently for everything you don't like. We have a very specific definition. I'll just do very quickly mine, which is that if you have any beliefs that are fundamentalist, it's because you think they can't be wrong. So if you're absolutely certain, there's clearly no role for dialogue. And I think we all should recognize the fundamentalisms in each of us and in society. We can talk about that after. Uh, we argue in the book that fundamentalism uh, it hits us across a wide spectrum of areas, not just religion, and that's where the term comes from, but in my field, economics and politics, culture, the academy and the like. Uh, and we worry in conclusion here now, Larry, that uh, we fear for democracy. And if you look at some survey data, the uh, other survey, in addition to the 62% afraid to speak their mind about politics, more than half of Americans in a recent poll said that the number one threat to this country is other Americans. Now, I've said this in other podcasts and webinars, and people say, well, maybe what about the 50s? Maybe that was the always case. I don't know, but I don't have a time series. But it is scary that more than half of Americans say the number one threat to America is not, you know, climate change, growing wealth inequality, uh, the former Soviet Union, China, but other Americans. Almost exactly half of Americans said that they would label their political rivals not as uh, opposing rivals, but as enemies. And that speaks to this rise and people screaming at each other. A third, and this really worries me, and it gets to your point before, um, Larry, about violence and intimidation. Uh, one third of Americans said violence and intimidation couldn't be justified if you achieve political objectives. And then maybe the scariest is that a quarter of Americans say they support breaking up the United States of America. And that is like unbelievable, 25%. What can we do about it? What gave rise to it? What do we think the future is going to be like? I'll leave that for Saul. Thank you, Larry. Great. So I'll go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a Russian specialist and studied the Soviet Union. So um, one of the things that strikes me about the kind of fundamentalist sort of thinking is, which um, is not necessarily religious, you know, Marxism-Leninism is a good example of it. It professes absolute certainty. It cannot be wrong. And therefore, anybody who doesn't share it is either, you know, <clears throat> stupid or more, most likely evil. Now, if you have this view, uh, there's no room for difference of opinion. And democracy depends on the notion of legitimate difference of opinion. So you, you, think, you think to yourself, well, yes, this is what I believe, but of course, like everybody, my experience is partial. I think I'm right, but I ha God did not speak to me. I might turn out to be wrong. Occasionally, the other side is right, or maybe some combination of the two. That's exactly what a fundamentalist um, doesn't think. Um, you know, Lenin had complete contempt for, for, for notions like that. You know, and you absolutely know. And when you do that, if there's no legitimate 
uh, reason for opposition. There is no reason not to have a one-party state. Um, there's no reason, if the other side is simply evil, not to do what Lenin did. Maximal force, you don't sort of gently coddle the opponent, you, you just eliminate them. Um, and that, that's, I think, you know, when you see that kind of thinking, that, that's, you know, where it's headed. And, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, lack, more, the lack of tolerance for diverse points of view you know, seems to flow directly from this. You can't be wrong. It's also why you don't know what the other points of view are. People isolate themselves. You know, I've known lots of times when people I know have said, um, you know, made some point, and then I say, well, what's the other side of that? And they, they simply haven't a clue, because they only listen to one side. And it never dawns on them that you don't know the other side if you only know your side's characterization of the other side. And of course, that, that's, you know, that's sort of like allowing a trial to be done only with the prosecution, and then the prosecution presents you know, what the defense should be saying. Right? You, you won't really know what they say. You only know what the other side says if you can paraphrase it, their position in such a way that they would accept it. But that's what's not done. Um, where does this claim for certainty um, come from? How do you justify it? Well, one way in which, it, you know, in religious cultures, it came directly from God. You know what God thinks. Um, you know, a second characteristic of fundamentalism we, we call um, the perspicuity of truth. That is, the truth is perfectly obvious to any right-thinking person who looks at it, just the way, you know, the Bible's meaning is perfectly clear, if, if, if you think that way. What plays that role in a secular culture? And the answer is the appeal to science. And so people make claims that science speaks for them when it's perfectly clear that they do not understand what science is. There are lots, we talk about this, there are lots of ways that without knowing the science on any given topic, you can tell when the appeal is misguided. For example, if someone speaks of science as a single block of truth, all of which is equally sure, they don't understand science. If that were true, science couldn't advance. That's how religious dogma is, a single block that's equally sure. But there's always more recent things, less sure in a science, more likely to be overturned than, than more established things, even more established things could be. Um, but someone who thinks of you know, some recent thing based on recent data or a computer model as science and you can't challenge it does not understand what science is and is appealing to it as a form of superstition or, or as a religion, if you will. You know, another way is if they take the, the policy recommendation or the social uh, consequence as they see it, of a scientific doctrine as part of the science, let's say the way social Darwinists do. Science doesn't have anything to say about morality or society, and there is no social science in, in, in the hard sense of that. When they do that, you know immediately that they are misusing it. Um, you know, our science reporters don't seem to understand this, and very often our scientists don't seem to understand it. You know, um, you know they think that if they speak phrase their insights to ha do the most political good, that's what they should be doing as scientists. But when they do that, people pick that up, and they, they cease to trust the scientists as representing science. You know, when Dr. Fauci says, if you criticize me, you're criticizing science, he has misunderstood. A scientist isn't science. The science is science, and scientists are people. They make mistakes. They lie, as, you know, as he does. They, they misrepresent things. That is exactly what you don't want, what someone who understands scientists um, wouldn't think. Um, I've been surprised that 
you know, in recent years, we've seen more and more um, affection for a command economy, uh, that, that form of socialism. Um, a poll I just saw yesterday said that the majority of Democrats, not of population, but of Democrats, prefer socialism to capitalism. And as someone who, you know, who studied the Soviet economy, uh, you know, it, one would think that that showed why it cannot work. And our book has several you know, pages on how the Soviet economy actually worked, why a command economy didn't work. But the key notion the Soviets had also pertains to certainty. That is, they thought they had a science of society that entitled them to be certain, which meant they don't have to rely on the anarchy of the market, which would control people against their will. Society has perfect knowledge and therefore can completely, with a science, scientifically organize society. So the notion of certainty, you understand, immediately involved the centralization of power to the maximal extent possible. And, and you understand what, you know, when the Soviets said um, speculation is a crime, they didn't mean you know, gross overcharging any economic activity outside the plan was speculation and criminal. So that one factory couldn't trade for another with another what it needed if, both, if they both had it. That, 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 was, that was criminal. It was sometimes done, but it was, it, it was criminal. Um, so uh, the other, Larry raised the point about where you know, realist literature comes in. And there, I think that the great realist novels, literature generally, but novels in particular, um, teach us empathy, uh, intellectual as well as emotional, because you inhabit the skin and the thought process of a person unlike yourself. You follow it for hundreds of pages, and you get practice in seeing the world from a point of view other than your own. And then hopefully you can carry that practice over elsewhere. You know, other disciplines can tell you to empathize. They don't give you practice in it, but great, great literature does. And I think, you know, with more of that, more of that spirit that you'll find in, you know, Tolstoy or George Eliot or Jane Austen, uh, our polity would probably work a little better. All right, Saul. Great. Um, you know, let me follow up um, on Fauci for a second, your example of um, trusting the scientists, because I think it's one of the great uh, concerns as a nation we have right now relates to uh, vaccine acceptance. And there's a sense that, um, that the C among a very substantial portion of the population is that Fauci is not being um, honest with the public. Uh, in particular, originally, he may have misled the public about masking policy in order uh, to allow um, the medical establishment to have more access to masks if it was in short supply. Um, how do you feel about trust uh, and the scientific community and the CDC in particular? And if that trust has been broken, how what would, would be a better way of persuading um, those Americans who have not been vaccinated to, um, to learn about the science to make a decision to hopefully get vaccinated? Yeah, those are great questions. You know, Dr. Fauci didn't possibly misrepresent. He said that he lied when, when confronted with the, the, the um, fact that he was now recommending masks when he didn't before. He said, I said that in order to because we had a shortage of masks and I didn't want to prevent, you know, or I wanted to prevent a run on them. 
it didn't occur to him that when you do that, you discredit any future statement that he or scientists might make. Similarly, when, you know, when he had you know, the teachers' union there writing the policy, the very words for um, their recommendations regarding schools, it didn't occur to him that if you politicize your process, people are going to take it as politicized. I mean, judging from what has happened, there isn't any good reason that a sensitive person you know, would, would not question anything they said. Doesn't mean it's always wrong, but it compromise his own policy compromises it. How do you regain, you know, um, confidence in that? Well, you, the scientific the scientific community didn't call him on these things. They therefore bear responsibility that people don't trust science. You know, like with the you know when the the theory of the Chinese lab was you know leaked was re- regarded as absolutely ridiculous, and you know you know you're racist if you say it. What, since it was perfectly clear that <laughs> there was some reason to think it might be true, the fact that the scientific community itself didn't speak out is what most dis- causes reasonable people not to trust scientists. It's not a matter of not trusting science. It's a matter of not trusting scientists. And that's where you know, the scientists have fallen down. How do you know, if you're not a scientist, what, and what the science is? If you can't trust the scientists to represent it objectively, who do you trust? Um, how do you get people to, you know, um, take the vaccine now? You know, I don't, I don't know. What, that's what you've squandered. You've squandered the trust. Um, you know, if, if I ask myself why I, given all this, not believing the CDC anymore, got the vaccine, it's because I trust the pharmaceutical companies because they go through really rigorous testing, and they haven't let us wrong. There hasn't been any, you know, fakery of that, and the drugs have worked as, as they're supposed to. But you know, that's, and, you know, and they don't make political pronouncements. That's what we can still trust. If they start doing it that way, then we're really up the creek. I want to bring in Morty on this one. Um, Morty, um, it, we have an FOMC, and uh, Alan Meltzer, many decades ago, created something called the Shadow uh, FOMC. And what they did was they would meet on the same day as the FOMC, uh, they would take a vote. And they would make a public announcement with regard to how they would implement uh, policy. And when they make disagreements, they would articulate why they disagreed. And if the vote was closed, like it was a 5-4 decision, you could sense that maybe that this wasn't really doctrinaire, that there was room for error. How would you feel if we had something like a shadow CDC, uh, where we had leading scientists um, vote and prescribe, whether it be on masks or vaccines or whatever policy, so that uh, the public would be aware that on some issues it wasn't clear-cut um, and that uh, the announcements uh, in the scientific community were nebulous. Um, how do you feel about creating non-governmental institutions to create shadow agencies to articulate views uh, to the public? Well, you know, I, this is a Sunday, of course, so I, I watch Face the Nation, Meet the Press. Many of you probably do the same thing. So we have a shadow group of pundits out there looking at everything we do, whether from science or from economics or social policy, debt policy, whatever. So I, I'm not so sure it would really have the credibility, Larry, that people would really believe. I, I do believe, though, um, if you do have any committee, whether it's a shadow one or the actual one, it's important to have all the disciplines represented and have another group of science 
scientists and, and medical personnel critique in a, a group composed with that same uh, group, you know, without ethicists or other groups. I mean, I, I mean, I, Saul and I were talking before with you, Larry, and with you, Josh, uh, about a course that we've done now to be the 12th time in a row, an undergraduate course we teach together at, at Northwestern, and it's on how different disciplines can get together to not just say, okay, this is what a economist thinks about it, this is what a humanist thinks, this is a philosopher, historian, political scientist, psychology, but actually put together the disciplines to come to a better understanding of truth. The last thing I'd say about that, Larry, related to your opening questions to me, that class used to be really more on, okay, this is what an economist thinks truth is and how you approach it, this is what a sociologist thinks and all that, and we've actually morphed the course over a dozen years to reflect what the topic is, which is growing amounts of incivility and the demise of dialogue. So the course is now on how you foster meaningful dialogue among disciplines and among people with very different ideological points of view. I want to bring up religion for a second. You, um, in the book, you talk about um, how the Old Testament – uh, can provide insights it, as an example of uh, a realist uh, novel um, and what we can learn from it. Um, and that certain things like the Constitution and, and certain like certain commandments are doctrinaire and aren't really um, debatable. Um, and then the other hand, and I think Saul, you probably wrote this part, was about um, that some aspects of of religion are no longer uh, consistent with your own views and how you deal with that. Um, in my son's bar mitzvah, he, he, the text he was given was in Leviticus and it was the kosher laws. And he opened up his, his personal speech by asking the synagogue congregation, you know, what is your bacon policy? Uh, and he, you know, he said he eats it, loves it. Um, but what other commandments do we not have to follow if we don't follow the bacon policy? Um, how should we think about religion um, and, the, and the use of stories and, and storytelling in religion to help us guide our lives? And which ones should we follow, and, and how do we decide which ones not to? Uh, Morty, do you want to start with that one? <laughs> yeah, well, I, we actually wrote it together to yeah. observe a Jew, and I, I study the Hebrew Bible in particular weekly. But um, it, it, the general question, Larry, is, is really uh, – I think it's a broader one. It's really when do you have the – we wrote an op-ed called When Do You Have the Chutzpah to Rewrite the Torah, right? So, But it's not just in religion. It's, it's in the Constitution. It's many different ways of reinterpreting Shakespeare for – you know, there's always a temptation to say that we're the best and the brightest at this generation. You know, Marcel Proust said famously that the reason every generation feels – they are alive at the most important turning point time in history is because they never study history. Well, it's the same thing here. So, you know, the temptation is always to rewrite it by current mores, take the relativist view, if you will. And we argue in that chapter in religion, and that is proven to be the most controversial, Larry, of the book. In fact, to the point when we gave some book talks, Saul, don't forget, in front of faith-based communities, um, we almost kicked out that chapter because we don't have expertise. You know, I have to observe them too, but I don't, I'm not a theologist nor a Saul. Uh, but yet, you know, we, we, we went in there and we said, okay, 
this, these are the Ten Commandments you should keep. These are the ones you shouldn't. This is how you set up on when you occasionally interfere. If you never interfere, then probably it's not timeless. It's, it's useless. So that's a very difficult thing. But it's like free speech, right? You know, you better have a very good reason to violate that basic principle. And it's the same thing, especially when you rewrite books that some people think God was the author of. Saul? Yeah, I would say when you're dealing with a text like that, if you decide that, well, you know, it has to accord with our beliefs, we will see only what fits our beliefs and reject everything else, then you don't need the text at all. I mean, let's say the purpose of a constitution is so that to restrain you from not doing things you want to do because of principles that come later. That's why you need a First Amendment, right? Because to protect against a majority that wants to do things. You know, on the other hand, if you don't allow any sort of changes, you, you lock yourself into things that don't make any sense anymore, right? Um, uh, so, and, and when we're going back to the Bible, we're going back a, a much longer distance. Um, so you have to have some approach that gives the text real authority beyond the current situation, not just whatever we like, but isn't absolutely inflexible. And I think that was the spirit in which the Constitution was written. Otherwise, it wouldn't have you know, a provision for amendments, for example, um, it, which are possible, and they're just very difficult. So you know, they, they, I think, I don't know if whoever wrote the Bible understood it, but whoever wrote the Constitution clearly understood that you had to strike a ground that made it a strong burden of proof that people overwhelmingly agreed with not to uh, follow, you know, to change the Constitution, um, but um, you, you can change it, you know, and um, that's the sort of thing we would suggesting, though on different grounds, with different particular arguments, you know, for the Bible, too. I think one of your points there, Saul, was this aspect of supermajority rule, that majority was insufficient. Um, in amending the Constitution, it requires three-quarters of the states to accept a, an amendment. Um, and that we, as Americans in the, at the federal government, uh, have used a filibuster uh, requiring currently three-fifths of the Senate to pass or to end a debate to, to pass legislation. Here um, in Congress this very week, they're proposing a $3.5 trillion bill, uh, which will greatly expand the role of the federal government. Um, and they're proposing to do it using a bunch of reconciliation where it would require just 50 senators to, to pass the, the relevant legislation. And I guess the question for both of you is, um, do you think um, one party with 50 votes should pass to radically change the government uh, if it has the power to do so? Or should they refrain from doing so to try to get some support from the opposition uh, and to do it in a supermajority sort of way? Or should it be just pure power politics? Morty, let's start with you on that one. Well, well, first of all, as you saw, Chapter 4 is on what we know about economics. You know, one thing I like about my field, Saul laments that being a humanist, ideology, you know, interferes with your translation or, if you will, interpretation of, you know, great books of Russian literature and the like. We don't have that in economics. We argue in Chapter 4, yeah, there's some right-wing people left who don't who really – have never read Adam Smith, and they believe that, therefore, you know, it's always laissez-faire. Adam Smith didn't believe it. Nobody should believe it. The bigger worry, as we alluded to already in the last 
20 minutes is on the other side, this growing distrust of uh, private ownership of the means of production and using markets to allocate scarce resources. But Larry, there is a whole literature and everything from what the minimum wage should be, how you deal with uh, carbon offsets, how you deal with healthcare. And we, we have a lot of studies, some of which I've done with my co-authors, many of which I, other people have done. And we've settled a lot of these things. If you get the politics out of it, we know what, we, what works and what doesn't work. So my worry is I'm not a, a democracy expert and I don't to filibuster and all that stuff. So maybe I'll leave that to Saul. But I do worry as an economist that uh, whenever the government does one of these enormous spending bills, a lot of it is absolutely wasted. Some people are actually worse off, um, particularly if you figure out the cost for future generations of increased debt. Um, but it's just not used efficiently. And, you know, I've been advising politicians for decades for all different levels. And they always say, okay, that's what an economist say and says, and this is what we know about price elasticity of demand and how we should restructure Pell Grants, my specific field. But we can't do that because we can't get the votes. So my answer to you, Larry, is if we stick to actually the data and we do things, you know, as Saul argues, it's a sin to be inefficient, to waste resources. So if I had more confidence that the government would, would spend the money in a way that's really consistent with this overriding set of economic data on what works and what doesn't. The SNAP program does early. I mean, I could go on this. This is the whole chapter that we wrote about this. Then I wouldn't, then I'd say, okay, go with the simple majority. But, you know, my worry is no matter how they do it, a lot of the money is going to be wasted. So from a Russian perspective, the purpose of, you know, three-quarter vote for a constitutional amendment is not just to make it overwhelming majority, but because it takes time. And that, um, you know, and the founding fathers were aware that you can have a wave of enthusiasm or, or hatred, which will pass. And so they tried to slow things down. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons for divisions of power for a longer Senate, uh, a longer term Senate than, than House. Um, the, what I see going on is the attempt to unravel all of this. The fil eliminating the filibuster goes hand in hand with the same uh, idea of packing the Supreme Court. If you pack the Supreme Court, there is no Bill of Rights anymore, because if the other two branches want to you know, violate the Bill of Rights, they just have to add justices to the court. I mean, the, the entire point of a Bill of Rights disappears if you can you know, pack the court. It's an attempt to concentrate power, and the whole patterns of, uh, you know, of this has been you know, trying to grant uh, ram a major change down with, with the slimmest of majority is, is, is part of that too and those are not the way uh, you know democracy works by achieving a consensus by you know uh, the more the larger a bill is the more extensive it is the more it depends on a general consensus and that, that's what if you don't whereas in a you know, dictatorship you don't need a consensus you just need the central power to do it and, you know, that mentality, you know, is very harmful to, um, uh, to the democratic process in the long term. Even if the particular – I don't know which proposals here are, are good or not, but I do know that the idea of concentrating power um, in that way, even if it's right now, is bound to be highly destructive uh, in the not very long run. So just I want to go uh, back to the novel for a second. Um, 
we had on what happens next a variety of English professors uh, besides you, and each of them sort of articulated a different message, and I wanted to get your hat in the ring as to where you sit on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first one we had was E.D. Hirsch, mm-hmm. and what he said was that he didn't care so much about which books children's read uh, as part of the curriculum, but he cared very much that they read the same books so that we could have a common language and a common communal experience. He doesn't mind that France has a different curriculum than the United States, um, but he wants it to be um, that we've all read certain books. Um, and uh, that contrasted, we had um, Weinstein from Brown, who felt very strongly that the, the, not only do we read the same books, but that the, the, the books that we read were, uh, were important, that he wanted to read Huckleberry Finn uh, and um, not other books, for example. Um, how do you come out with what our curriculum should be at the high school level and to contrast it with should it be the same books or not? Where do you come out on that one? Well, the question is what do you think the purpose of literary education is? You can't decide which books until you decide what you're trying to accomplish. You know, uh, Hirsch thinks that the purpose of it is so that uh, you know, to a kind of cultural literacy, so that everybody shares certain views, in which case it doesn't matter what you read. If, however, you think that the purpose of it is so that students can learn, read great literature on their own afterwards, have a taste of what it is, then clearly it does matter which um, books you read. Um, it, you know, it might be nice, if, you know, as in for many years, you know, Huckleberry Finn, basic Shakespeare plays, you know, were read all across the country, um, but many things would not be. And, um, you know, uh, from my perspective, what's important is that you have people who appreciate great literature teaching it, which is very often not the case, um, and that, you know, they can pick, as long as it's, you know, a truly great work, what they can best convey to their students. Um, that That's, you know, because for me, the appreciation of great literature, so that students can, you know, say, I love this, I want to read more, it is, the key, it is the key thing, and I would shape the curriculum around that, which means getting the right people and following what, their, what each one finds is their passion. So a couple of weeks ago we had Angus Fletcher from Ohio State, um, and his topic was um, on neuroscience and literature specifically. But one of the things that I, uh, he thought said was interesting, he said – um, he, in, in his classes, he doesn't assign a text. He lets each student decide what text they're going to read. Um, and then instead of focusing on literary criticism, he has the student uh, do a creative work, their own uh, short story that follows the same story pattern or narrative pattern uh, as the book that they've chosen. How do you feel about giving that choice ultimately to the student and how do you feel about kind of pushing away from literary criticism towards uh, creative fiction on their own as a way of, of learning the process of, of experience of experimental? You know, I don't like either either alternative. There, the students can't, you know, choose what literature they're going to read intelligently. If they could, they'd already understand literature. They don't. You know, they have almost no experience, and what the experience they have is not read in a sensitive way. Literary criticism suggests, though, something really professional, like, you know, technical, like let's find as many symbols as we can, which kills people's interest, you know, very rapidly. What you want to do is, you know, get students to see why 
there's something really rich and interesting and profound that they want to know if you read this work sensitively. Um, and then they'll want to read more. It's neither literary criticism in a technical sense, nor certainly not relying on them because they don't they don't know. So, um, you know, I guess what I'm the people you cited, you know, all of them are very intelligent people, but none of them seem to think that the purpose of teaching literature is to get students to love and read literature, which is I find strange from very intelligent English professors. All right, one final angle on this. Um, there, there seems to be a lot of change uh, in the curriculum, um, and in particular, an opposition to the dead white males. Um, we had Robert uh, Pondicio speak. Uh, he's at AEI, speak about education policy a few weeks ago, um, and he mentioned that there's uh, some hashtags out there in opposition to Homer, for example, and, and trying to ban the teaching uh, of of the Odyssey uh, and other Greek works. How should we think about this transition towards um, an implementation of critical race theory uh, as, as, a, as a lens to evaluate literature and in the choices of what books to read? Look, if you come to literature with any ideology, critical race theory, Marxism, Leninism, you know, hardcore psychoanalysis, behaviorism, neurobiology, you do not read literature. You take it and you impose an ideology on it and find what you're looking for. You, know, you might as well read laundry lists if you're going to do that. That has nothing to do with understanding literature. It doesn't matter if it's critical race theory. Okay? It could be just another ideology. You know. um, as, by the way, for I, banning Homer as a dead yeah. white male, Homer didn't exist, you know, so it's really odd to consider him as, you know, as white or anything else. He, you know, what we call Homer is the product of a long tradition. There was no Homer. Okay, um, Morty, trying to bring you back into the into the show. But, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying this, Larry. You know, Saul and I have done three books together, and the the past two, um, we have a whole chapter from Saul on what he thinks of the way most people teach literature these days. And you talk about getting canceled, but you know, you can imagine when I'm at a faculty meeting. And they say, hey, President Shapiro, your name's on this book with this incredible diatribe about most of what we teach and how we teach in the humanities. You know what I say, Larry? Saul wrote it. Talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm willing to take well, responsibility for it. <laughs> you know. let's, talk, wait, let's talk about cancel culture for a second. Morty, you were attacked uh, publicly and you know on your front doorsteps. Um, and... You know, here you are, you know, a moderate in favor of, of free speech generally. Why why were you attacked? Um, and what did you learn from it? And how do we stop this from going on? And how do we preserve and encourage uh, dialogue and differences of opinion on campus? Well, Larry, if I had never been attacked and never been canceled by some group uh, as a public figure, I would think there's something either wrong with me or with that group, right? Since everybody has, it's just a matter of degree. I still, you know, I'm still here and, and still teaching and publishing and doing all that. So compared to many other instances, you know, it was pretty, pretty tame. But, um, you know, one of the lines that is really proven to be true, I always loved the line, but now I feel like I live it, is that the revolution devours its own children. And you see that, you know, with the rise in fundamentalism on the right and on the left, 
nobody's pure enough. And you said, I'm a moderate. I'm actually not a moderate. I mean, in, in most of my advising, it's almost entirely been for Democrats and, and with a lot of very liberal stances economically and socially and the like. So, you know, I'm much further to the left, but not far enough to the left for some and much too far to the left from others. You know, I mean, the Fox News crowd has been canceling me for years, calling me the king of the snowflakes when I wrote this stuff about safe spaces and the like. So the more recent one is more from the left, but I never stopped uh, being canceled from the right. And again, you know, it is really instructive. I think, Larry, that you think about that dark day on January 6th when the mob, you know, breached the, the doors and the walls and the windows of the, of, of the Capitol. You know, what did the far right people want to do? You know, you'd think they would be saying, let's find Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and AOC and kill them. I'm sure they would have gladly done that. But they were really looking for Pence, you know, arguably the most conservative member of, a, you know, the executive branch in a hundred years. I mean, pray away the gay is just the beginning, right? So, you know, nobody's pure enough, Larry. You know, you can be on the left, but yeah, they'll end up canceling you. If one, thing, one of the many things I've learned from, from Saul in our books and classes together is that's exactly what happened in the Russian Revolution. You know, I mean, it, it, the most left-wing wing people weren't left-wing enough, and and it happens on the right as well. So, you know, what can you do about it? I, I think to try to model certain kinds of behavior. I mean, our class, again, as I said, it's more from sort of epistemology to respectful dialogue. Yeah, I, I think rec rec recognizing the fundamentalism in each of us. I alluded to the fact I'm observant to you. I, I, I do not have conversations about, you know, is there a God and is that God benevolent? There is in my mind. I, I'm not interested. So, I mean, if, if everything you believe, Larry, is up for debate, as one of the reviewers of mine, wide shut, put it, uh, if your mind, you want your mind wide open, but not so wide open that your brain falls out. So certain things make you who you are. But if most of what you believe is really not open for debate, you have a problem and this country has a problem. Yeah, I would, you know, what, what Morty said was right. I know when he was in trouble and I was, um, you know, gathering support from him, I found out that, um, uh, you know, conservative right-wing groups that, you know, complained about, the lack of free speech in cancel culture <clears throat> told me they would not support Morty. When I asked why, he says, well, he doesn't agree with us on many things. You know, to which I said, well, the point of free speech is for people you don't agree with, isn't it? Anybody gets free speech to people you do agree with. <laughs> this didn't get very far. Um, so, you know, some of the, the people who are um, making a noise about free speech correctly, sometimes you wonder whether they get it. All right, we got a question just came in. Uh, this is from Jay Green. Jay is uh, was my high school debate partner, and he's now uh, at the Heritage Foundation. He asked a question about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracies. Um, he says that the average university now has a staff of 45 DEI, uh, and Northwestern is now at 52. Um, you have more people in your DEI than you have a faculty in your history department. Um, why why is it growing and uh does it make sense morty i think that that comparison and how you count versus history is absolutely borderline ludicrous if not completely incorrect i hate to say that to a loyal listener of yours but the, it, we we had not sufficiently 
engage with diversity, inclusion, and equity questions in the academy. We've done a much better job in diversifying our student body at all levels than we ever had in making them feel welcome. And there's ample evidence. All you have to do is look at, you know, say your alma mater there, Larry and Josh at Penn, and look at, you know, who at, at senior, just stick to the undergrads who say that, you know, they had a great experience at Penn or Northwestern or at Yale or Solwyn or anywhere else we happen to have taught or have gone that, you know, would you do it again? Would you recommend it to somebody else? And it, it varies greatly. Affluent Caucasians see these institutions very, very differently than the rest of the group. And we really have to address it. And I don't know, counting numbers, uh, how you decide. What, do you have either the word D, uh, diversity, equity, or inclusion in your title? I, I don't know how you count that. But I, I don't lament that we put some resources into this. It was long overdue. Let me try a completely different topic, um, and that is opening up the university um, during a time of COVID. Um, it's never going to be safe. We're going to have new variants. Um, but online is different than being in person. How are you going to think about this problem uh, as the variants become more problematic and at the same time maintaining an open classroom uh, with students and teachers together? Well, Larry, a lot of it is pure effects, and I've actually done some empirical studies along with others on pure effects you learn from each other. And, Larry, I was struck that when you and Josh met in a pretty weird uh, English seminar, your first class ever at Penn, you know, the only thing you told me about the professor was what an idiot she was, but you made your best friend, who's still your best friend 37 years later. So a lot of what happened depends on the spontaneity of being there, being in the dorms together. So we, like our peer institutions, are doing whatever we can. We're learning from, in fact, Saul and I wrote an op-ed about that recently, you know, what are the lessons from COVID for more effective undergraduate, graduate, and professional school engagement. But being there in person is the key to it. Um, and, you know, the last thing I'd say about that, I mean, Saul, it's an idea, but Larry, I preside, I've been a president 22 years at Williams and at Northwestern and, you know, presiding over reunions. When people come back to celebrate their 25th, 50, whatever it is, and I say, why are you back? What did you love about your alma mater? And they talk about, you know, an intramural uh, team. They talk about sometimes fraternity, sorority, musical group, faith-based organization, well, you know, staying up all night and watching the sunrise, this and that and that. And finally, I say, did you ever take a course? I mean, it's mind-boggling <laughs> that here I am, the president of this damn university, and I'm saying, why do you love your alma mater? How will you transform? And they usually don't even think to mention a class. And, you know, when I was a straight faculty member before I became administrator going over to the so-called dark side, you know, I thought it was all about me. I thought that you'd ask somebody who graduated from Penn or SC or Williams or Northwestern, the place I've been privileged enough to teach, and they would talk about, oh, I had Shapiro, I had, uh, you know, econometrics apply, you know, that changed my life. No. So, you know, being there in person, the learning that takes place in the dining halls and in the dorms is on us to make sure it's safe. But, I mean, that's such an important part of the value proposition at, at, at any school, college or university. Yeah, you know, so, and People sometimes say to me, listen, okay, seminars need, you know, back and forth, but why can't, you know, lectures like the ones I give be, you know, just recorded? Who needs to be there? You can watch them when you like. 
And to which my answer is, do you still go to live concerts? Do you still go to the theater? Do you zoom in to religious services? Or do you – presence – you go to live concerts because presence matters in the experience, and being around other people really matters. Um, and that's – even for reason Morty gives, that's especially true in you know, education, not in the classroom and outside the classroom. So you mentioned that you're going to be teaching a class in the fall um, on Brothers Karamazov and Anna Karenina, and you've been teaching it for over 30 years. Um, why is that course important to you? Why should it be important uh, for kids? What what is what are you doing that's special? Well, I can tell you what I'm trying to do, and I, I think you know these are two of the greatest um, books in the history of the world. And what I want the students to do is to appreciate why great literature using these books can tell them something about life or themselves or the things that really concern them that you can't get anywhere else. And I find these books are, you know, they speak to issues that the students are already thinking about. You know, Anna Karenina is about the nature of love. Who doesn't think about that, right? And when the smart way to love, the, what it's all about, how it affects your life. And it's maybe the most profound statement on it ever done, certainly one of them. And if they can see what, you know, what is being said there, what questions that are being asked, even if they're not answered, um, they will realize that they can get things out of literature they can't get anywhere else. They're dealing with the greatest minds you know, in the world, um, and they have something to say to them. Uh, that's what I try to get across, and I find these books are good at doing it. They're not the only ones, of course, but you know, their very greatness makes it um, a little easier to... Um, get them across. Also, they, you know, the Russians discuss, you know, great, you know, important questions explicitly. Whereas, let's say, if you go to Jane Austen, uh, the questions are there, but it, you have to tease them out. They're more implicit. Um, I find that, you know, the, the directness of Russian literature and asking these questions, where the characters ask these questions directly, helps uh, for students who don't have a lot of experience in reading literature. Sal, so are, are you going to teach in person? Um, how how are you physically going to do it? Well, I hope to do it the way I did before the pandemic. You know, I, I go in and there's a you know there's a room and I, you know, um, there's you know, the <laughs> lecture part of the class and there's the you know, discussion section and the lecture part. You know, I don't just stand up there and talk. If possible, you know, I you know pace the aisles. I go back and forth. I read people's faces. I, you know, I, it, I make it as interactive as, as you can. Um, uh, you have to watch, you know, the, the students and see how they're responding if they're dozing off, and you know, you know, if something is difficult. It's really an interaction, and it's I find it absolutely exhausting, you know, if I as I wouldn't if I was just reading old notes, you know. Also, I have to get myself, you know, I've been doing it for 30 years, but I reread things, and I get I have to get myself inspired again, you know, because I'm trying to make the love of it infectious, and unless I'm inspired, it won't be infectious. So that's a, you know part of the preparation of it. That's why it still takes a long time to prepare these things till, till something snaps. Do you find that you also teach in the alumni education area? Um, my mom has been very active in that uh, at Northwestern. Um, how do you, do you notice a difference in the audience participation or in the behavior or, or thought process of your older students versus uh, your younger students? Well, let me just say that, you know, when I did it this summer, it was the worst teaching experience I have ever had um, because it wasn't even Zoom. It was a webinar. I couldn't see anybody's faces, not even on the screen. 
you know, this is not the way to do it, and I would never do that again. And I didn't realize when I signed up, I thought it was going to be a Zoom class, you know, where I could at least see the pictures of the people. Um, no, but to, to answer your question, uh, the yes, of course, older people, they bring an enormous amount of life experience. So, you know, you know, ideas that might be, you know, questions that might be new to, you know, 18, 18 or 19-year-olds have long been, you know, They've long been living them, you know, even if they haven't thought of them explicitly, they've been living them. They bring a wealth of experience, you know, to it. And, you know, I learned, I learned from my undergraduates, too, but you learn especially much from, you know, from, from, um, you know, from your contemporaries. Morty, you opened your talk by citing some polling data uh, that 62% of people said that they are scared of the political views of their opponents um, why is it so high, and what can we do about it? How do how do we follow some of the ideas in your book to sort of get that number down? Um, how do we stop dividing ourselves? Well, I, I guess the first part, and again, I'm going to apply to econometrician Larry. I'm not the, I don't really have the best person to answer that question, but. You know, I, I'm not surprised 62% of Americans say that they're afraid to express their political views publicly because everybody is ready, you know, to cancel you, right? So you have to be really careful. And, you know, when I talk to students when they come in as first-year students, you know, I, I caution them about that. You know, sometimes the parents say, well, you're president. You're supposed to say, you know, you could say whatever you want and be respected. And I said, I lived on campus. So what are you talking about? Of course, that's not the world never been the world. It's really not the world. It's one thing for me to get canceled from the left and the right. I'm 68 years old. You know, I've had tenure for many, many years. If I were 20 and I lived in the dorm and people canceled me and I have students who, for whom that's happened, that is really scary. And of course, you know, the cancel is, is usually not, it's a small percentage of it is limited, is, is just the people on your campus or in your dorm. You know, for me to vast number of people who every day send me threats and everything. You know, it's people from the far left increasingly, but also there's still a fair number from the far right. So you have to be really careful what you say. What do you do about it? We think that education, that's what we're writing about right now, Saul and I, about the different ways we can restructure our classes. Uh, as Saul said, you know, I think he referred to the John Stuart Mill line that he who knows only his own case knows precious little of that. And, that's the mantra for the course we teach together. I mean, you get graded by how well you can present the other view. Now, you want to present your view pretty well, you better present the other view extremely well. And we never thought about grading that way, you know, 12, 13 years ago, because that was more the norm. But now everybody vilifies each other and your opponents aren't, again, misguided, but they're embodiment of, of absolute evil. You know, that's important. So I think academe has a, has a role to play there. We all have a role to play in, in our own personal lives. And that's why I think recognizing, looking in the mirror and saying, what are you fundamentalist about? And then trying to realize and then try to get out of your comfort zone. I, I watch a lot of Fox News now. I never used to until we started writing this book a year and a half ago. It's very different. In some cases, it's infuriating. In some cases, it's much better than the CNN I'm used to. It actually is. And I think I've really learned from that. So I, I think trying to get out of your intellectual comfort zone. I, we live in echo chambers, right, Larry? You know, when I grew mm -hmm. up, you watched ABC News, CBS, NBC. 
and whether it was Brokaw, Jennings, or, or uh, rather, you know, it's pretty much the same sort of news. Um, and now you compartmentalize, and we live in silos, and we hear our words and thoughts echoed off, and that makes us feel really good. It's really bad for democracy. Um, I was uh, I was a high school debater. Um, I was a cherub. I went to Northwestern debate camp uh, when I was a junior in high school. And one of the exciting things about debate is they would flip a coin uh, at the start of every round to decide if you were going to take uh, the pro or the con side of a, of a specific topic. Um, Northwestern historically has been a leader in debate. Um, it's won multiple national championships. Um, and I got to know a, a number of the Northwestern debaters over the years. Um, how do you think of debate as a way of uh, learning how to make arguments on both sides? Uh, should that be encouraged more at, at the high school level? How do you think of debate as a as a way of learning um, the spectrum of ideas? Well, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. So let me just make one point. But the only thing is we have a, a new op-ed that's coming out next week when we say – but real dialogue isn't just scoring debating points. It's right. actually mm-hmm. listening and learning from your opponent. So that's the one thing that, yeah, you're a great debater. They give you the for or against, and you try to win the debate. But I think for democracy's sake, what we should really try to have enough intellectual humility to learn from each other. So Yeah, you're not trying to – debates are trying to win. In a democracy, you shouldn't be trying to win. But still – um, you do have to know both sides. I remember when we first started teaching the class, I had, you know, in one of the discussion groups I did, um, a student who, you know, continually aced all her papers, you know, and uh, I asked her how she did it, how, you know, because she always managed to present a good argument from the other side and then engage with it. And she said, oh, it's, it's very simple. She said, I used to be a debater, so, uh, you know, I had some talent in that. And then she said, what I did was I always defended the side I don't agree with, and therefore I could know there were strong arguments on the other side and present them, which I thought was very clever. You know. um, in each of our sessions, I always try to end on a note of optimism. Um, Saul, what are you optimistic about? You, if you want optimism, you better go to Morty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Russian specialist. <laughs> I don't deal with optimism. <laughs> All right, buddy, up to you. Well, I, I would just say, Larry, that uh, the fact that people are taking time away from a busy Sunday, you know, to actually engage with different people and listen to them, and, you know, is really important. You know, people ask me all the time as a college and now university president, what, what are the outcomes you want? And, of course, it's aesthetic sensibility, respect to different views, including ideological diversity, which is hard to do on campus, but something we need to work even harder on, you know, obviously as an econometric, applied econometrician, you want to be adept um, uh, quantitatively and everything. But the most important thing is realizing how little you know, to have the intellectual mm-hmm. humility to learn from one another and, and not think you know all the answers. Uh, you know, undergrads are famous for thinking they know all the answers, and that's particularly the case you know, the advantage of being old is that Saul and I taught boomers and this generation. That There's a lot we like about Gen Z, um, but, you know, they really do care about issues, not just to pad their resumes to get into Yale Law School, which is many of the students I've taught over my career. Um, they really, really care, but they don't know how to listen 
as well as they need to. And they don't have the intellectual humility. It's a strange mixture. And you know, as a parent, and many of you, I think probably parents have three kids, saw as a kid that it's, it's an insecurity about not being accepted, which makes them very vulnerable to cancel culture um, with this intellectual certainty that they know all the answers, like capitalism is bad and on and on and on. And, you know, it's a scary combination, but I, I think that um, I, I'm more optimistic about the future because I think Gen Z is going to do a very good job as they get more experience and they take over uh, responsibility and authority. I'll just say, you know, when I deal with a lot of students in a residential college, I'm the faculty advisor of, and what strikes me is that if you look, ask the students' beliefs, they're certain and intolerant. But if you look at their behavior and how they treat each other, they're just as warm and empathetic and open-minded, if not more so, than before. There's a disconnect there, and that, that's a good thing, I think. Okay, thank you, Saul and Morty. Uh, we're going to go to our final speaker now, Josh Sovin. Uh, as I mentioned before, Josh was my college roommate, and he worked at the Department of Justice and FTC in the field of antitrust. Uh, Josh, why don't you take us through your six minutes? Larry, thanks very much for inviting me back. And also, uh, before I start, that was a fantastic presentation we just heard. Really, really interesting. I enjoyed it. So let me say at the outset that not surprisingly, I and my firm represent a lot of companies with interest in these antitrust issues these days. And these are, of course, my views. Uh, a lot has happened since I last spoke on the program. As Larry mentioned, President Biden chose Lena Khan to be the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. Ms. Khan favors a much more aggressive antitrust enforcement approach. She became actually quite famous in law school when she wrote a, uh, you know, kind of a cutting edge article that was criticizing ap the application of the antitrust laws to Amazon. What's also happened is a federal judge appointed by President Obama dismissed the FTC's complaint against Facebook. They have until Thursday of this week to let them know what they're going to do. The House Judiciary Committee, with some, report, with some support from Republicans, voted out laws that would place restrictions on large digital platforms. And just a few weeks ago, the Justice Department blocked the Aon Willis Towers Watson transaction, even though the European Commission had approved the deal with some conditions. So my topic today is to talk about what's really going on here, you know, what's driving this and what it means for business. And throughout my remarks, I will emphasize that, look, this is a practical, practical discipline. It is spoken about these days in somewhat theological and at times philosophical concerns, but it's really not. You know, it's a day job where women and men are, you know, sort of doing it in the field and how they implement it is very important. The, the bottom line of the present condition is that antitrust has once again become part of national economic policy with a mix of progressivism and populism. And I'm not criticizing that. You know, I agree with some progressive things and some populist things. But this incorporation of it into broader um, national economic thinking really hasn't happened for decades. For the past 40 years, the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission have handled antitrust enforcement largely sort of below the radar on a case-by-case -case basis with a laser focus on harm to consumers. If the agencies thought they could prove higher prices or reduced innovation that harmed consumers, they would bring a case. If they didn't, they closed the file and moved on to the next matter. Members of the Biden administration and some on the political right as well believe that antitrust should be viewed from a much more macro perspective. They believe that U.S. industries are far too, many U.S. industries are far too concentrated. 
and that this concentration is causing big problems, not just for consumers, but also workers, small businesses, and indeed, you know, the larger fabric of American society. They blame what they view as lax antitrust enforcement by prior administrations, Republicans and Democrats, and an overall misunderstanding of the purpose of the antitrust laws. FTC Chair Khan and Professor Tim Wu, who advises the president on competition issues, are really big proponents of this view. What's also going on is due to the rapid growth of just four companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon, you know, that has turbocharged popularized interest in antitrust across the political spectrum, again, in a way that hasn't happened for decades. Many of the concerns expressed about these companies don't actually really have much to do with traditional antitrust. Issues related to privacy, data security, and political speech have always, you know, while obviously extremely important, have always been dealt with through other laws. But now politicians are looking to use antitrust enforcement, enforcement methods to address these issues. So what does this, you know, all mean, you know, for businesses, particularly ones, you know, who don't really view themselves as Google, Apple, Amazon, or Facebook? First, what I tell clients, literally, probably on a daily basis, don't panic. So far, there really have been no substantial changes in outcomes, at least not yet. The actual results coming out of the antitrust agencies to date remain within the traditional mainstream. That said, companies definitely should not take a business-as-usual approach over the next three and a half years and you know, perhaps longer. Just focusing on prices and levels of service to consumers and their arguments isn't going to get the job done at all. Targets of antitrust investigations will need to broaden their advocacy to cover a wide range of issues, including impact on smaller businesses, market structure, the labor markets in particular, and data security. In addition, you know, in order to reduce risk, it is really important that parties to strategic mergers, mergers decide to move a lot faster in responding to government requests for information. These, these merger investigations literally take a few months short of forever. Um, it's not uncommon for them to take more than a year. And while the length of these investigations has always been strategically dangerous for merging parties, in this environment, you know, again, regardless of whether you're big tech or not, it's going to, going to become increasingly fatal. And long merger investigations are neither legally required nor practically necessary. Technology allows the parties to produce the information rapidly that the government wants. And at the end of the day, the analysis, you know, this is a little bit perhaps against interest, my own interest, the analysis that the government is doing with antitrust work really is not all that complicated. You know, as Larry knows, my dad was a physics professor for 40 years. This is not physics, and it's not even close to it. It's a pretty rough discipline where, you know, men and women largely of goodwill are making decisions with highly imperfect information. You know, finally, uh, and this doesn't get talked about enough as well, but it will, for most high-profile strategic deals, companies are going to need to have a litigation strategy in place from the beginning. A unique attribute of, attribute of the U.S. antitrust system is that the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department generally need to go to court in order to block a transaction. This is a really, we're just talking about sort of checks in the Constitution. This is a really powerful check on the antitrust agencies, but it only works if the parties are prepared to litigate from the get-go. If companies aren't willing to fight, then the government lawyers are going to sense it immediately, and they will lean on them to apply leverage. Uh, what's also interesting about what's going on is an incredibly U.S.-centric um, focus of the discussion, but it's really Europe um, that probably is going to present the biggest risk for many U.S. companies 
over the next five years in, anti in the antitrust world. Economic populism is just as strong in Europe as it is in the United States. And unlike the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission, European competition agencies usually do not need to go to court to stop conduct. Not surprisingly, that gives them a lot more latitude to bring enforcement actions that might be untenable in the United States. Just a few words about what until recently was considered the kryptonite of antitrust, and that's regulation. A lot of the justification for antitrust is to avoid regulation in the first place. Uh, I worked, I've worked for a lot of people of a lot of parties, and one of my Democratic bosses explained to me when I was a long time ago that he said, look, what we're doing here is we are applying, you know, this legal framework to stop bad stuff, which if allowed to continue is going to produce regulation, which would be worse. You know, indeed, the whole idea of having an antitrust legal framework that allows for government to stop anti-competitive conduct on a case-by-case -case basis is to avoid broad-based prescriptive rules. Today, um, government antitrust lawyers around the world, not just in the United States, are actively getting into the regulation business. Federal Trade Commission Chair Kahn has written that reliance on case-by-case -case adjudication produces lots of problems. The head of the European Commission Agency, of the European Competition Agency, has made similar statements in Europe is actively working on regulation to the technology markets, which it will roll out next year. It's not clear at all, not surprisingly, what regulations will ultimately come out of this. But when the world's antitrust agencies announce that they are working on rules for various industries, it is certain they are going to get a lot of mail with many suggestions with many, from many companies with strategic interests. To protect themselves, businesses will need to implement political strategies to respond offensively and defensively, depending on their interests. Uh, I want to end today, before you know, I segue over to Larry's questions and let him fire away at breaking up the tech, you know, with the point I made at the end of the article that's on Larry's website. Um, antitrust, like everything else, it's not self-executing. A perfect law, fantastic regulations, and the best of intentions, just like any other field, they can all go north or south really fast, depending on the actions of real people in the arena. And I think this is why lawyers like me get to keep our jobs. Let me stop on that, Larry, and, you know, have at it. Okay. Um, you know, there used to be like this Chicago school of antitrust theory where all we needed to focus on was on the consumer experience. Um, and big tech can rely on the fact that uh, what they're offering is a superior product from the consumer standpoint. And their attacks are coming in from other firms who feel like, you know, they're losing the battle. Why has the Chicago School consumer efficiency, consumer experience, uh, losing it in the, uh, in the idea realm? Yeah, no, it's a really important question. So let me tweak your premise just a little bit. Some members of the Chicago School liked that approach, others didn't. But I think the key point actually is all schools today, Chicago, Harvard, et cetera, Neo-Chicago, everybody agreed on you know, what you're describing as sort of the consumer welfare standard, where the focus of antitrust was on whether prices were going up to consumers, you know, innovation was going down, services would go down, and lots of other concerns like labor and market structure and diversity, none of that was really in the mix. It was just huge consensus on this consumer welfare standard um, for a variety of reasons. What's going on, um, and I think it's largely driven by the focus on big tech, 
is in order to bring a successful antitrust enforcement action under the consumer welfare standard, you usually have to prove that prices are going up to a customer. You know, I always knew I had a winner, usually when I worked at the Justice Department, when the document said, look, you know, we think we're going to raise prices or this, this company we want to buy is constraining us from, you know, raising price. The government wins those cases. The challenge, um, if you think it's the right move to go after a lot of these technology companies, is that they're sending prices through the floor and in some cases charging nothing. So I, I don't represent Amazon, so I'll, you know, I'll focus on Amazon a bit. Amazon, you know, no question, you know, for many of the products they've sold, has dropped price a lot and made you know, lots of different ways, not just in terms of nominal price, but access to products and the like. So what, you know, what let's call them, you know, you know, the new guard wants to do is, well, they need a way to go after Amazon and they can't show that prices are going up. So what they've advocated is for a much sort of broader approach, which sort of looks not just at effects on consumers, but effects on other businesses, with the intuition being that even though consumers are benefiting in the short term, they'll lose out in the long term if Amazon drives a lot of businesses, you know, you know, out. All right, let's drill down on Amazon for a second. And, you know, on this program, what happens next? We've covered Amazon in all sorts of ways. Um, and we had Brad Stone speak about Amazon, his new book, Amazon Unbound. We've talked about, um, you know, different areas where Amazon has provided uh, innovation, particularly in logistics. Um, but I guess what's um, the chairwoman, uh, Lena Khan of the FTC, uh, has spoken in her, uh, in her academic writings, uh, opposition to Amazon. And it seems that Amazon is going to face the wrath of Khan, if you will. Um, a little Star Trek reference there. Um, what they have this marketplace at, where you can go on Amazon Marketplace and they offer products by rivals uh, of Amazon and, and they can choose where to put it, etc. Um, I've always found Amazon's decision to include products from third parties, from other retailers in opposition to their sales program is just um, a combination of both revolutionary and uh, shows strength, not weakness. We don't off, you, you don't go to Walmart and there's a Target section uh, in the store. Um, what is it about Amazon that really uh, gets in Lita Khan's crawl? Why, why does she want to stop it uh, from growing? Why, um, why does she want to limit the ability of Amazon to manufacture clothes and sell their products uh, or diapers on their on their websites. What is it about that that um, sort of institution that, that bothers uh, the progressive movement? Yeah, no, so it's a couple of things. Um, and she, you know, in the article where she became, you know, quite prominent, she writes very, you know, very clearly that, you know, Amazon has produced very substantial benefits for consumers today. Um, she doesn't dispute that. Her, um, you know, she acknowledges it. Her concern is that the company has become so important and, in her view, effectively a utility for e-commerce that if Amazon is allowed to continue to expand 
and continue to grow and branch out into new lines of business and you know, use its cash from its um, web-based services to drive the drop price on other products, that sooner or later or medium term, what's going to happen are two things. One, you're going to drive out competitors to the point where Amazon has sufficiently little competition that they'll be able to raise price. But two, and this is also a point that you know, Tim Wu picks up on, you're going to have a lack of diversity, economic diversity, not the type of not the type of sort of gender racial diversity, but economic diversity in the market. And that's a harmful thing for the economy and it's a harmful thing for democracy. And so her point is that if you look at the odds of antitrust and you know, like all legislative statutes, it's a bit opaque. There was a much broader set of objectives at play there than you know, whether we get a fantastic price on you know, a book and we get it to our, delivered to our house in three hours, and that allowing Amazon to massively expand is going to damage those other interests. Now, how one, to your point about, now how one puts that into an enforcement framework, you know, that's, that's the practical, one of the practical issues, you know, I was talking about where it remains to be seen whether, the, you know, whether they can pull that off. And it's also why I think there's some doubts they can pull it off, so, which is why people are interested in regulation. Um, years ago, um, people questioned why Microsoft didn't have a Washington office um, so that they could be heard in the aisles of Washington. Um, and what surprised me this time was that some of these large tech firms decided to play from one side of the political aisle. I'm thinking particularly of Facebook uh, and Amazon with Bezos' decision to uh, by the Washington Post and use it as a platform to attack the Republicans. And in that aspect, um, they've angered and pissed off uh, senior members of the Republican leadership uh, who would be their natural allies um, against uh, enforcement actions and changes in regulations of big tech. Why do you think um, big tech decided to take on the Republican Party uh, and now they find themselves being challenged from both sides? And why didn't their endorsement of Democratic Party ideals ingratiate themselves uh, with the progressive wing of the party, and, and why, despite that, have the progressive decided to attack big tech? Yeah, so now we're, um, we're it's a great question to ask, answer, and I'll do it, but we're a little out of my field of expertise. So again, I'll sort of qualify that I'm giving you my own, own take on this. Um, Microsoft had the benefit of operating in a political environment that was much less highly charged than it is today. I am certain, you know, if I had to guess, um, you know, many people at, in Redmond, you know, in 1998, when a Democratic administration was going after them, you know, were on the political left. But no one really knew about it, and it was just a different time. Today, every, you know, every email that someone may have written inside one of these companies um, is potentially available, and the model is such that politicians are much more attuned to what these companies are doing than they were to Microsoft, in part just because they're communication devices in a way that Microsoft was not. So my honest take is that, you know, there is not um, within these companies any form of um, 
sort of mens rea or cognizable political strategy to um, benefit one party or the other. Uh, each of the you know executives were grilled uh, in front of the House Judiciary Committee on this topic, you know, and they they honestly said, look, we've got they said we've got nothing to do with this, you know. Yeah, I mean, Bezos bought the post, but I don't think that's part of a political strategy for his company. But the reality is that they are now caught up in this discussion where certainly the Republican Party clearly is concerned about, you know, their views and how they might run their companies with respect to politics. And, you know, I suspect just as um, Microsoft over time developed a more comprehensive strategy to think about messaging on these topics, that's what these other companies are going to do. But I, you know, in the work I've done, I have not seen an effort to swing the companies one way or another. I think actually, you know, part of what's going on is they've largely, the people doing the work kind of keep their head, you know, are keeping their heads down and just kind of working on their stuff. And they got caught up in a political dynamic that they did not anticipate. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that's maybe tangential, and I, I hope you have an opinion on. Um, sure. We had David Weil uh, on the show a few weeks ago. David uh, is currently runs a, a department at Brandeis, and he's been nominated, I believe, to go back to the same job he had in the Obama administration, uh, which was in the Department of Labor uh, wage uh, hourly wage division. Uh, in it, he's... Um, He's opposed to the gig economy and doesn't like the fact that uh, technology companies like Uber um, and others uh, don't directly hire uh, employees. This is true of Amazon Logistics as well, um, that they use third parties uh, who use Amazon trucks uh, to deliver goods. Or in Uber example, they, they, they're independent contractors. And this limits the ability of um, the government to force Amazon or Uber to uh, enforce uh, labor rules. I, I recognize this is a little bit out of the antitrust area, but in some ways it reflects sort of an antagonism towards technology and, and big tech and, um, and the gig economy. How do you think about regulation as it affects, like, who are we dealing with? Who is the company, et cetera? Right. So, um it's one of the reasons why whatever your intentions and your views about regulation is going to be challenging to do. So, for example, um, Ms. Khan, Mr. Wu, lots of other people have really criticized the use of the antitrust laws because they don't think they've protected labor enough that, you know, big companies are now exercising upstream market power and that's uh, reducing wages and the like. My view is, Larry, is that, you know, it's really challenging to try and use regulation to affect what are macroeconomic issues in the labor market. And that a lot of what's stressing people out about, you know, new uh, relationships with um, labor, I mean, take Uber, which we don't represent, is, is not the product of too little competition, but too much or more. And that as the markets have become more and more competitive, businesses aren't doing this in order to exercise market power. They're doing this in order to stay financially viable. And, you know, that, that makes um, regulation just a challenging thing to do. I mean, more broadly, I mean, the gig economy is here to stay. 
I mean, it is massive. The, the reason it exists and is growing is it is massively popular with consumers, and consumer spend constitutes a huge percentage of GDP. So that's not to say there really aren't important things you can do, you know, in the labor markets, and those are being debated in part, you know, in the three and a half trillion dollar um, bill you mentioned. But whether you can use antitrust type regulation to, on a systematic basis, affect labor regulations, I have my doubts. Where, you know, where antitrust has worked in the labor markets is in a very discrete set of circumstances where you have local markets, you know, the proverbial two mill town. There, there you can figure out something to do, but, you know, holding back the tide of the gig economy you know, for good or bad, it's here, and we're going to need to figure out how to deal with it. Um, I want to go back to the uh, first principles and how America got caught up uh, in this antitrust. Um, Josh and I uh, took a class at Penn together on American economic history, uh, and we read a book together by Gabriel Kolko about um, <laughs> about the origins of uh, antitrust policy in, in Theodore Roosevelt's administration. And one of the cases we looked at was um, Standard Oil. And in Standard Oil, it it had tremendous market power. Um, and the reason that they were so successful is they kept cutting prices and taking other people's out of business. So in the Chicago School of Consumer Welfare, uh, they were constantly lowering prices, which is generally considered a good. I think what upset the political establishment um, was market power. It was becoming a very, very powerful company uh, and had to be broken up. It wasn't so much about price. And when I contrast that with the European experience, it seems like in Europe, they're constantly trying to um, get larger companies, um, more power, and then, um, and then use that as, an, as a means of uh, affecting employment patterns um, and making, get, gaining more job security. So they have almost two different frameworks. How do you think about um, the European versus the American experience in the theory of antitrust and how that will affect uh, about how these economies develop over time? Right. So one of my jobs when I worked for the chair of the Federal Trade Commission was to spend about a third of my time in Europe, um, you know, working and coordinating with their competition agencies. And the upshot is the the psychological culture is different. You know, a lot of the rules sound the same, and obviously the microeconomic models are the same, but they think about it differently, and which doesn't make it, you know, better or worse. It's just different. And one of the um, realities, one of the differences is there is a much more symbiotic relationship, you know, a time strain, but, you know, coordinated relationship between large companies in Europe and the government in Europe. And, you know, they work together and they talk a lot. And, you know, they're at times even extensions of the government in terms of various issues, you know, that are, you know, timely here today, including labor conditions and, you know, market structure and small businesses and the like. The, the U.S. is not the U.S. culture, you know, left, right, and center, you know, doesn't work that way at all. Those lines of communication aren't there and those working relationships aren't there. And it's one of the reasons that now that, you know, we have these various sort of powerful economic 
political forces hitting us that everyone said, oh, we don't really have, you know, we don't have a system to deal with this, you know, sort of in coordinated fashion. We really got to put the foot on the gas of antitrust and, you know, fix these things. And we feel better trying to do that than, you know, in sort of a collaborative joint venture way. The, the, um, the cultures are just different. Josh, as I, as I mentioned before, we try to end each show on a note of optimism. Uh, what are you optimistic about as it relates to antitrust? Yeah, it's, I mean, to go back to my bias, you know, sort of as a practitioner um, and a little bit less of a theologian, uh, I've been stunned that, you know, and to their credit, that the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department had been able to work as effectively as they have when they are not there. You know, I may disagree with some of the things they're doing, I agree with some of the things they're doing, but a really underreported story in DC is these government offices are empty. You know, no one's, no one, we're not sticking 800,000 people on the metro and filling them up. And by and large, um, they've been oper- able to operate, you know, pretty seamlessly without much disruptions. I mean, it's, you know, been the occasional chatter about various delays and the like, but things are working as they are. You know, I'm not exactly, or working quite well. I'm not sure what that means for the future, but I do think the um, government gets a lot of credit for keeping, you know, the lights on and the trains running in ways that, you know, don't get a lot of attention. Okay. All right. Uh, That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's episode. Um, Our first speaker will be retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie of the Canadian Army, uh, who served as the Commander-in-Chief of Staff of the Canadian Army. He served uh, in Afghanistan, and Andrew's talk will focus on what the U.S. troop pullout will mean for Afghanistan, and in particular for the female population. Um, Our second speaker is Robbie Ludwig, who is a nationally known psychotherapist and a regular on CNN and Fox News. She will be discussing her book entitled Till Death Do Us Part, Love, Marriage, and the Mind of a Killer Spouse. Our final speaker will be one of my best friends, Darren Schwartz, who will discuss his own adoption and his 30-year search for his biological father. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any other preview episode or wish to read a transcript, you may find these on our website entitled What Happens Next in 6 Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you, and you may disconnect at this time. Bye-bye.